Thank you for joining us for part two of O Yearning Heart, Tracing Hope Through the Poetry of Edgar Allan Poe, brought to you by Rhapsodize Audio. Continuing our line of unhappy couples, our speaker of the next poem meets his love along the village street, only to quarrel with her and break up. Of course, the bad thing about breaking up with someone in a place you go to every day is that it is really hard to move on when reminders are staring you in the face. And our speaker finds himself in that exact spot. The Village Street In these rapid, restless shadows, once I walked at eventide, when a gentle, silent maiden walked in beauty at my side. She alone there walked beside me, all in beauty, like a bride. Pallidly the moon was shining on the dewy meadows nigh, on the silvery, silent rivers, on the mountains far and high, on the ocean's starlit waters, where the winds a-weary die. Slowly, silently, we wandered from the open cottage door, underneath the elm's long branches to the pavement bending o'er, underneath the mossy willow and the dying sycamore. With the myriad stars in beauty all bedight, the heavens were seen, radiant hopes were bright around me, like the light of stars serene, like the mellow midnight splendor of the night's irradiate queen. Audibly the elm leaves whispered peaceful, pleasant melodies, like the distant murmured music of unquiet, lovely seas, while the winds were hushed in slumber in the fragrant flowers and trees. Wondrous and unwanted beauty still adorning all did seem, while I told my love in fables neath the willows by the stream, would the heart have kept unspoken love that was its rarest dream. Instantly away we wandered in the shadowy twilight tide. She, the silent, scornful maiden, walking calmly at my side, with a step serene and stately, all in beauty, all in pride. Vacantly I walked beside her. On the earth mine eyes were cast. Swift and keen there came unto me bitter memories of the past on me, like the rain in autumn on the dead leaves, cold and fast. Underneath the elms we parted, by the lowly cottage door. One brief word alone was uttered, never on our lips before, and away I walked forlornly, broken-hearted evermore. Slowly, silently I loitered, homeward in the night, alone. Sudden anguish bound my spirit that my youth had never known, wild unrest, like that which cometh when the night's first dream hath flown. Now to me the elm leaves whisper mad, discordant melodies, and keen melodies like shadows haunt the moaning willow trees, and the sycamores with laughter mock me in the nightly breeze. Sad and pale the autumn moonlight through the sighing foliage streams, and each morning midnight shadow Shadow of my sorrow seems. Strive, O heart, forget thine idol, and, O soul, forget thy dreams. Have you ever wanted something so badly you could taste it? You knew it was a long shot, but you had to try anyway? Yeah, most of us have been there. That's the case for the poor knight in El Dorado, chasing a dream until he can barely even ride. Then he gets some advice. And what kind of advice, you ask? The impossible kind, which causes our hope meter to continue to drop. Eldorado Gaily bedight, a gallant knight, in sunshine and in shadow, had journeyed long, singing a song in search of Eldorado. But he grew old, this knight so bold, and o'er his heart a shadow fell, as he found no spot of ground that looked like Eldorado. And as his strength failed him at length, he met a pilgrim's shadow. Shadow, said he, 
Where can it be, this land of El Dorado? Over the mountains of the moon, down the valley of the shadow, ride, boldly ride, the shade replied, if you seek for El Dorado. The City in the Sea is another of those poems that explicitly connects beauty to death and destruction. A beautiful city is set by the sea, elaborately and lavishly decorated, but it is inevitably fated to be consumed by the sea, Poe going so far as to call the sea hell as it consumes it. The City in the Sea Lo, death has reared himself a throne in a strange city lying alone far down within the dim west, where the good and the bad and the worst and the best have gone to their eternal rest. There shrines and palaces and towers, time-eaten towers, that tremble not, resemble nothing that is ours. Around, by lifting winds forgot, resignedly beneath the sky the melancholy waters lie. No rays from the holy heaven come down on the long night-time of that town. But light from out the lurid sea streams up the turrets silently, Gleams up the pinnacles far and free, Up domes, up spires, up kingly halls, Up fanes, up Babylon-like walls, Up shadowy long-forgotten bowers Of sculptured ivy and stone flowers, Up many and many a marvellous shrine, Whose wreathed friezes intertwine The viol, the violet, and the vine. So blend the turrets and shadows there That all seem pendulous in the air, While from a proud tower in the town Death looks gigantically down. There open fanes and gaping graves Yawn level with the luminous waves. But not the riches there that lie In each idol's diamond eye, Not the gaily jewelled dead Tempt the waters from their bed. For no ripples curl, alas, Along that wilderness of glass No swellings tell that winds may be Upon some far-off happier sea, No heavings hint that winds have been On seas less hideously serene. But lo, a stir is in the air, The wave, there is a movement there, As if the towers had thrust aside In slightly sinking, the dull tide, as if their tops had feebly given a void within the filmy heaven. The waves have now a redder glow, the hours are breathing faint and low, and when, amid no earthly moans, down, down that town shall settle hence, hell, rising from a thousand thrones, shall do it reverence. In the next stop along our journey, we move from the desolate city to a valley void of living creatures, as everyone has gone off to fight in a war. The speaker takes great pains to illustrate how everyone has gone, and how even nature seems to weep for the loss, in the Valley of Unrest. The Valley of Unrest Once it smiled a silent dell where the people did not dwell. They had gone unto the wars, trusting to the mild-eyed stars, nightly, from their azure towers, to keep watch above the flowers, in the midst of which all day the red sunlight lazily lay. Now each visitor shall confess the sad valley's restlessness. Nothing there is motionless, nothing save the airs that brood over the magic solitude. Ah, by no wind are stirred those trees that palpitate like the chill seas around the misty Hebrides. Ah, by no wind those clouds are driven that rustle through the unquiet heaven uneasily from morn till even. Over the violets there that lie in myriad types of the human eye, over the lilies there that wave and weep above a nameless grave, they wave. From out their fragrant tops eternal dews come down in drops. They weep. 
from off their delicate stems perennial tears descend in gems before we leave the natural world let's take a look at a trio of poems uninterrupted with to the river continue with the lake and end with the city and the sea while at times it's nice to pause in between poems to refocus our thoughts sometimes it's nice to hear them uninterrupted to get the feel of a place and time and thought to the river fair river in thy bright clear flow of crystal wandering water thou art an emblem of the glow of beauty the unhidden heart the playful maziness of art in old alberto's daughter but when within thy wave she looks which glistens then and trembles why then the prettiest of brooks her worshipper resembles for in his heart as in thy stream her image deeply lies his heart which trembles at the beam of her soul-searching eyes the lake in spring of youth it was my lot to haunt of the wide world a spot the which i could not love the less so lovely was the loneliness of a wild lake with black rock bound and the tall pines that towered around but when the night had thrown her pall upon the spot as upon all and the mystic wind went by murmuring in melody then oh, then i would awake to the terror of the lone lake yet that terror was not fright but a tremulous delight a feeling not the jewelled mine could teach or bribe me to define nor love although the love were thine death was in that poisonous wave and in its gulf a fitting grave for him who thence could solace bring to his lone imagining whose solitary soul could make an eden of that dim lake the city in the sea lo death has reared himself a throne in a strange city lying alone far down within the dim west where the good and the bad and the worst and the best have gone to their eternal rest there shrines and palaces and towers time-eaten towers and tremble not resemble nothing that is ours around by lifting winds forgot resignedly beneath the sky the melancholy waters lie no rays from the holy heaven come down on the long night-time of that town but light from out the lurid sea streams up the turrets silently gleams up the pinnacles far and free up domes up spires up kingly halls up fanes up babylon-like walls up shadowy long-forgotten bowers of sculptured ivy and stone flowers up many and many a marvellous shrine whose wreathed friezes intertwine the viol the violet and the vine resignedly beneath the sky the melancholy waters lie so blend the turrets and shadows there that all seems pendulous in air while from a proud tower in the town death looks gigantically down there open fanes and gaping graves yawn level with the luminous waves but not the riches there that lie in each idol's diamond eye not the gaily jewelled dead tempt the waters from their bed for no ripples curl alas along that wilderness of glass no swellings tell what winds may be upon some far-off happier sea no heavings hint that winds have been on seas less hideously serene but lo a stir is in the air the wave there is a movement there as if the towers had thrust aside in slightly sinking the dull tide as if their tops had feebly given a void within the filmy heaven the waves have now a redder glow the hours are breathing faint and low and when amid no earthly moans down down that tower shall settle hence hell rising from a thousand thrones shall do it reverence let's move from the wide outdoors to the relatively smaller setting of the stage now let's invite all of the universe to watch the performance god planets angels etc for your entertainment this evening we have a man newly deceased being eaten by a worm at the end of the show 
Even the angels declare the show to be a tragedy. Entitled, Man. And the hero of all the show, the Conqueror Worm. This one may be the lowest on our hope meter yet. The Conqueror Worm Lo, tis a gala night within the lonesome latter years. An angel throng, bewinged, bedight in veils and drowned in tears, sit in a theatre to see a play of hopes and fears, while the orchestra breathes fitfully the music of the spheres. Mimes, in the form of God on high, mutter and mumble low, and hither and thither fly, mere puppets they who come and go at bidding of vast formless things that shift the scenery to and fro flapping from out their condor wings invisible woe that motley drama oh be sure it shall not be forgot with its phantom chased for evermore by a crowd that sees it not through a circle that ever returneth in to the self-same spot, and much of madness, and more of sin, and horror the soul of the plot. But see, amid the mimic rout, a crawling shape intrude, a blood-red thing that writhes from out the scenic solitude. It writhes, it writhes with mortal pangs, the mimes become its food, and seraphs sob at vermin fangs in human gore imbued. Out, out are the lights, out all, and over each quivering form the curtain a funeral pall comes down with the rush of a storm, while the angels all pallid and wan, uprising, unveiling, affirm that the play is the tragedy, man, and its hero, the Conqueror Worm. Let's emerge from the theatre to observe nature in a more serene setting. In stanzas, the speaker sets out to understand the heavens, only to realize that he cannot, and is left in wonder. This is one of those poems that best exemplifies that inner struggle to reach out for hope, but isn't quite sure how to achieve that. Stanzas how often we forget all time, when lone, admiring nature's universal throne, her woods, her wilds, her mountains, the intense reply of hers to our intelligence. 1. In youth have I known one with whom the earth in secret communing held, as he with it, in daylight and in beauty from his birth, whose fervid flickering torch of life was lit from the sun and stars, whence he had drawn forth a passionate light, such for his spirit was fit. And yet that spirit knew not, in the hour of its own fervour, what had o'er it power. 2. Perhaps it may be that my mind is wrought to a fever by the moonbeam that hangs o'er, but I will half believe that wild life fraught with more of sovereignty than ancient law hath ever told, or is it of a thought the unembodied essence, and no more, that with a quickening spell doth o'er us pass, as dew of the night-time o'er the summer grass? 3. Doth o'er us pass, when, as the expanding eye to the loved object, so the tear to the lid will start, which lately slept in apathy? And yet it need not be, that object, hid from us in life, but common, which doth lie each hour before us, but then only, bid with a strange sound, as of a harp-string broken, to awake us. Tis a symbol and a token. 4. Of what in other worlds shall be, and given in beauty by our God, to those alone who otherwise would fall from life and heaven, drawn by their heart's passion, and that tone, that high tone of the spirit which hath striven, though not with faith, with godliness, whose throne with desperate energy hath beaten down, wearing its own deep feeling as a crown. Poets are generally clever people, 
and at some point they have to create a riddle poem. This is one of Poe's. An enigma conceals hidden names throughout the poem in various ways. Sarah Ann Lewis's name is visible if you take the first S in the first line and work down diagonally. Of course, all of the spaces will have to be removed, but it is still clever. In the early versions of the poem, Tucker Manatees was used instead of Petrarchanites. This refers to Henry Theodore Tuckerman, who wrote light sonnets for the Democrat Review in 1845. Personally, I think anyone who can take the time to construct a clever riddle hasn't given up all hope yet. Plus, the ideas expressed in the poem that we as humans may make less than intelligent decisions doesn't mean that we don't have the right to laugh at them. An Enigma Seldom we find, says Solomon Don Dunce, half an idea in the profoundest sonnet. Through all the flimsy things we see at once, as easily as through a Naples bonnet. Trash of all trash, how can a lady don it? Yet heavier far than your Petrarchan stuff, owl downy nonsense that the faintest puff twirls into trunk paper the while you con it. And veritably, Sol is right enough. The general Tuckermanities are arrant bubbles, ephemeral and so transparent. But this is, now you may depend upon it, stable, opaque, immortal, all by dint of the dear names that lie concealed within it. Our next two selections are companion pieces of poetic prose. Up first is The Shadow, a parable, which tells the story of a young man as he makes his way in the afterlife. It not only illustrates the fear of death and dying and judgment, but also the fear of an eternal separation from our loved ones if we don't all happen to end up in the same place for some reason, something that Poe focused on quite a bit in his poetry. Not very high on the hope meter, I'm afraid, but interesting nonetheless. Shadow, a parable. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow. Psalm of David. Ye who read are still among the living, but I who write shall have long since gone my way into the region of shadows. For indeed strange things shall happen, and secret things be known, and many centuries shall pass away ere these memorials be seen of men. And when seen, there will be some to disbelieve and some to doubt, and yet a few who will find much to ponder upon in the characters here graven with a stylus of iron. The year had been a year of terror, and of feeling more intense than terror for which there is no name upon the earth, for many prodigies and signs had taken place, and far and wide, over sea and land, the black wings of the pestilence were spread abroad. To those, nevertheless, cunning in the stars, it was not unknown that the heavens wore an aspect of ill, and to me, the Greek oinos, among others, it was evident that now had arrived the alternation of that seven hundred and ninety-fourth year when, at the entrance of Ares, the planet Jupiter is enjoined with the red ring of the terrible Saturnus. The peculiar spirit of the skies, if I mistake not greatly, made itself manifest not only in the physical orb of the earth, but in the souls, imaginations, and meditations of mankind. Over some flasks of the red Chian wine, within the walls of a noble hall, in a dim city called Ptolemais, we sat, at night, a company of seven, and to our chamber there was no entrance save by a lofty door of brass, and the door was fashioned by the artisan Corinos, and being of rare workmanship, was fastened from within. Black draperies, likewise in the gloomy room, shut out from our view the moon, the lurid stars, and the peopleless streets. But the boding and the memory of evil, they would not be so excluded. 
There were things around us and about of which I can render no distinct account, things material and spiritual, heaviness in the atmosphere, a sense of suffocation, anxiety, and, above all, that terrible state of existence which the nervous experience when the senses are keenly living and awake, and meanwhile the powers of thought lie dormant. A dead weight hung upon us. It hung upon our limbs, upon the household furniture, upon the goblets from which we drank, and all things were depressed and borne down thereby, all things save only the flames of the seven iron lamps which illumined our revel. Uprearing themselves in tall, slender lines of light, they thus remained, burning all pallid and motionless, and in the mirror which their luster formed upon the round table of ebony at which we sat, each of us there assembled beheld the pallor of his own countenance, and the unquiet glare in the downcast eyes of his companions. Yet we laughed and were merry in our proper way, which was hysterical, and sang the songs of Anacreon, which are madness, and drank deeply, although the purple wine reminded us of blood. For there was yet another tenant of our chamber in the person of young Zoilus. Dead and at full length he lay, enshrouded, the genius and the demon of the scene. Alas, he bore no portion in our mirth, save that his countenance, distorted with the plague, and his eyes in which death had but half extinguished the fire of the pestilence, seemed to take such an interest in our merriment as the dead may haply take in the merriment of those who are to die. But although I, Oinos, felt that the eyes of the departed were upon me, still I forced myself not to perceive the bitterness of their expression, and gazing down steadily into the depths of the ebony mirror, sang with a loud and sonorous voice the songs of the son of Teos. But gradually my songs, they ceased, and their echoes, rolling afar off among the sable draperies of the chamber, became weak and undistinguishable, and so faded away. And lo, from among those sable draperies, where the sounds of the song departed, there came forth a dark and undefiled shadow, a shadow such as the moon, when low in heaven, might fashion from the figure of a man. But it was the shadow neither of man nor of God, nor of any familiar thing. And quivering a while among the draperies of the room, it at length rested in full view upon the surface of the door of brass. But the shadow was vague and formless and indefinite, and was the shadow neither of man nor God, neither God of Greece nor God of Chaldea, nor any Egyptian God and the shadow rested upon the brazen doorway, and under the arch of the entablature of the door, and moved not, nor spoke any word, but there became stationary and remained. And the door whereupon the shadow rested was, if I remember aright, over against the feet of the young Zoilus enshrouded. But we, the seven there assembled, having seen the shadow as it came out from among the draperies, dared not steadily behold it, but cast down our eyes, and gazed continually into the depths of the mirror of ebony. And at length I, Oinos, speaking some low words, demanded of the shadow its dwelling and its appellation. And the shadow answered, I am Shadow and my dwelling is near to the catacombs of Ptolemais, and hard by those dim plains of Helusion which border upon the foul Coronian canal. And then did we, the seven, start from our seats in horror, and stand trembling and shuddering and aghast, for the tones in the voice of the shadow 
were not the tones of any one being, but of a multitude of beings, and varying in their cadences from syllable to syllable, fell duskily upon our ears in the well-remembered and familiar accents of many thousand departed friends. We will follow the shadow with its companion, the silence, a fable. In this fable, Poe draws from an older fable to create his own telling of a man who, no matter how hard he tries, cannot escape his torment. He goes to Africa, kills his tormentor, and the ghost continues to haunt him. Silence, a fable. The mountain pinnacles slumber, valleys, crags, and caves are silent. Listen to me, said the demon, as he placed his hand upon my head. The region of which I speak is a dreary region in Libya, by the borders of the river Zaire, and there is no quiet there nor silence. The waters of the river have a saffron and sickly hue, and they flow not onward to the sea, but palpitate forever and forever beneath the red eye of the sun with a tumultuous and convulsive motion. For many miles on either side of the river's oozy bed is a pale desert of gigantic water-lilies. They sigh one unto the other in that solitude, and stretch towards the heaven with their long and ghastly necks, and nod to and fro their everlasting heads. And there is an indistinct murmur which cometh out from among them, like the rushing of subterrene water, and they sigh one unto the other. But there is a boundary to their realm, the boundary of the dark, horrible, lofty forest. There, like the waves about the Hebrides, the low underwood is agitated continually, but there is no wind throughout the heaven, and the tall, primeval trees rock eternally hither and thither with a crashing and mighty sound, and from their high summits, one by one, drop everlasting dews. And at the roots, strange, poisonous flowers lie writhing in perturbed slumber, and overhead, with a rustling and loud noise, the grey clouds rush westwardly forever until they roll a cataract over the fiery wall of the horizon. But there is no wind throughout the heaven, and by the shores of the river Zaire there is neither quiet nor silence. It was night, and the rain fell, and falling it was rain, but having fallen it was blood. And I stood in the morass among the tall lilies, and the rain fell upon my head, and the lilies sighed one unto the other in the solemnity of their desolation. And all at once the moon arose through the thin ghastly mist, and was crimson in color, and mine eyes fell upon a huge gray rock which stood by the shore of the river, and was lighted by the light of the moon, and the rock was gray and ghastly and tall, and the rock was gray. Upon its front were characters engraven in the stones, and I walked through the morass of water-lilies until I came close unto the shore that I might read the characters upon the stone, but I could not decipher them. And I was going back into the morass when the moon shone with a fuller red, and I turned and looked again upon the rock, and upon the characters, and the characters were desolation. And I looked upwards, and there stood a man upon the summit of the rock, and I hid myself among the water-lilies, that I might discover the action of the man. And the man was tall and stately in form, and wrapped up from his shoulders to his feet in the toga of old Rome. And the outlines of his figure were indistinct, 
but his features were the features of a deity for the mantle of the night and of the mist and of the moon and of the dew had left uncovered the features of his face and his brow was lofty with thought and his eye wild with care and in the few furrows upon his cheek i read the fables of sorrow and weariness and disgust with mankind and a longing after solitude and the man sat upon the rock and leaned his head upon his hand and looked out upon the desolation he looked down into the low unquiet shrubbery and up into the tall primeval trees and up higher at the rustling heaven and into the crimson moon and the man turned his attention from the heaven and looked out upon the dreary river zaire and upon the yellow ghastly waters and upon the pale legions of the water-lilies and the man listened to the sighs of the water-lilies and to the murmur that came up from among them and i lay close within my covert and observed the actions of the man and the man trembled in the solitude but the night waned and he sat upon the rock then i went down into the recesses of the morass and waded afar in among the wilderness of the lilies and called unto the hippopotami which dwelt among the fens in the recesses of the morass and the hippopotami heard my call and came with the behemoth unto the foot of the rock and roared loudly and fearfully beneath the moon and i lay close within my covert and observed the actions of the man and the man trembled in the solitude but the night waned and he sat upon the rock then i cursed the elements with the curse of tumult and a frightful tempest gathered in the heaven where before there had been no wind and the heaven became livid with the violence of the tempest and the rain beat upon the head of the man and the floods of the river came down and the river was tormented into foam and the water-lilies shrieked within their beds and the forest crumbled before the wind and the thunder rolled and the lightning fell and the rock rocked to its foundation and i lay close within my covert and observed the actions of the man and the man trembled in the solitude but the night waned and he sat upon the rock then i grew angry and cursed with the curse of silence the river and the lilies and the wind and the forest and the heaven and the thunder and the sighs of the water-lilies and they became accursed and were still and the moon ceased to totter up its pathway to heaven and the thunder died away and the lightning did not flash and the clouds hung motionless and the waters sunk to their level and remained and the trees ceased to rock and the water-lilies sighed no more and the murmur was heard no longer from among them nor any shadow of sound throughout the vast illimitable desert and i looked upon the characters of the rock and they were changed and the characters were silence and mine eyes fell upon the countenance of the man and his countenance was wan with terror and hurriedly he raised his head from his hand and stood forth upon the rock and listened but there was no voice throughout the vast illimitable desert and the characters upon the rock were silence and the man shuddered and turned his face away and fled afar off in haste so that i beheld him no more now there are fine tales in the volumes of the magi in the iron-bound melancholy volumes of the magi therein i say are glorious histories of the heaven 
and of the earth and of the mighty sea and of the genii that overruled the sea and the earth and the lofty heaven there was much lore too in the sayings which were said by the sibyls and holy holy things were heard of old by the dim leaves that trembled around dodona but as allah liveth that fable which the demon told me as he sat by my side in the shadow of the tomb i hold to be the most wonderful of all and as the demon made an end of his story he fell back within the cavity of the tomb and laughed and i could not laugh with the demon and he cursed me because i could not laugh and the lynx which dwelleth for ever in the tomb came out therefrom and lay down at the feet of the demon and looked at him steadily in the face tamerlane is one of poe's most famous poems and one of his longest it is also the selection from which our program gets its title o yearning heart this poem a deathbed confession speaks openly about hope several times ultimately coming to a conclusion along the lines of hope being more divine in nature than human however it is still on the positive side of our hope meter tamerlane kind solace in a dying hour such father is not now my theme I will not madly deem that power of earth may shrive me of the sin unearthly pride hath reveled in. I have no time to dote or dream. You call it hope, that fire of fire. It is but agony of desire. If I can hope, oh God, I can. Its fount is holier, more divine. I would not call thee fool, old man, but such is not a gift of thine. Know thou the secret of a spirit bowed from its wild pride into shame. O yearning heart, I did inherit thy withering portion with the fame, the searing glory which hath shone amid the jewels of my throne. Halo of hell, and with a pain not hell shall make me fear again. O craving heart, for the lost flowers and sunshine of my summer hours the undying voice of that dead time with its interminable chime rings in the spirit of a spell upon thy emptiness a knell i have not always been as now the fevered diadem on my brow i claimed and won usurpingly hath not the same fierce heirdom given rome to the caesar this to me the heritage of a kingly mind and a proud spirit which hath striven triumphantly with humankind on mountain soil i first drew life the mist of the tagle have shed nightly their dews upon my head and i believe the winged strife and tumult of the headlong air have nestled in my very hair so late from heaven that dew it fell mid dreams of an unholy night upon me with a touch of hell while the red flashing of the light from clouds that hung like banners o'er appeared to my half-closing eye the pageantry of monarchy and the deep trumpet thunder's roar came hurriedly upon me telling of human battle where my voice my own voice silly child was swelling Oh, how my spirit would rejoice and leap within me at the cry, the battle-cry of victory! The rain came down upon my head unsheltered, and the heavy wind rendered me mad and deaf and blind. It was but man, I thought, who shed laurels upon me, and the rush, the torrent of the chilly air, gurgled within my ear the crush of empires, with the captive's prayer, the hum of suitors, and the tone of flattery round a sovereign's throne. My passions, from that hapless hour, usurped a tyranny which men have deemed, since I have reached to power, my innate nature. Be it so. But, father, there lived one who, then, then in my boyhood, when their fire burned with a still intenser glow, for passion must, with youth, expire. E'en then who knew this iron heart, 
in woman's weakness had a part. I have no words, alas, to tell the loveliness of loving well, nor would I now attempt to trace the more than beauty of a face whose lineaments upon my mind are shadows on the unstable wind. Thus I remember having dwelt some page of early lore upon, with loitering eye, till I have felt the letters, with their meaning, melt to fantasies with none. Oh, she was worthy of all love, love, as in infancy was mine, t'was such an angel minds above might envy, her young heart the shrine on which my every hope and thought were incense, then a goodly gift, for they were childish and upright, pure, as her young example taught. Why did I leave it, and adrift, trust to the fire within for light? We grew in age, and love, together, roaming the forest and the wild, my breast her shield in wintry weather, and when the friendly sunshine smiled, and she would mark the opening skies, I saw no heaven but in her eyes. Young love's first lesson is the heart. For mid that sunshine and those smiles, When from our little cares apart, And laughing at her girlish wiles, I'd throw me on her throbbing breast, And pour my spirit out in tears. There was no need to speak the rest, No need to quiet any fears of her, Who asked no reason why, But turned on me her quiet eye. Yet more than worthy of the love My spirit struggled with and strove, when on the mountain peak, alone, Ambition lent it a new tone. I had no being but in thee, The world, and all it did contain In the earth, the air, the sea, Its joy, its little lot of pain, That was new pleasure, the ideal, Dim vanities of dreams by night, And dimmer nothings which were real, Shadows, and a more shadowy light, Parted upon their misty wings, And so confusedly became thine image, And a name, a name, Two separate yet most intimate things. I was ambitious. Have you known the passion, father? You have not. A cottager, I marked a throne Of half the world as all my own, And murmured at such lowly lot, but, like any other dream, upon the vapour of the dew, my own had passed, did not the beam of beauty, which did, while it threw the minute, the hour, the day, oppress my mind with double loveliness. We walked together on the crown of a high mountain, which looked down afar from its proud natural towers of rock and forest, on the hills, the dwindled hills, begirt with bowers, and shouting with a thousand rills. I spoke to her of power and pride, but mystically, in such guise that she might deem it naught beside the moment's converse. In her eyes I read, perhaps too carelessly, a mingled feeling with my own, the flush on her bright cheek, to me seemed to become a queenly throne, too well that I should let it be, light in the wilderness alone. I wrapped myself in grandeur then, and donned a visionary crown. Yet it was not that fantasy had thrown her mantle over me, but that, among the rabble, men, lion ambition is chained down, and crouches to a keeper's hand, not so in deserts where the grand, the wild, the terrible conspire with their own breath to fan his fire. Look round thee now on Samarkand, is she not queen of earth, her pride above all cities, in her hand their destinies? In all beside of glory which the world hath known, stands she not nobly and alone? Falling, her veriest stepping-stone shall form the pedestal of a throne. And who her sovereign? Timor, he whom the astonished people saw, striding o'er empires haughtily, a diademed outlaw. O oh, human love, thou spirit given on earth, of all we hope in heaven, which falsed into the soul, like rain upon the Siroc, withered plain, and, failing in thy power to bless, 
but leaves the heart a wilderness. Idea, which bindest life around with music of so strange a sound, and beauty of so wild a birth. Farewell, for I have won the earth. When hope, the eagle that towered, could see no cliff beyond him in the sky, his pinions were bent droopingly, and homeward turned his softened eye. T'was sunset. When the sun will part, there comes a sullenness of heart to him who still would look upon the glory of the summer sun. That soul will hate the evening mist, so often lovely, and will list to the sound of the coming darkness, known to those whose spirits hearken, as one who in a dream of night would fly, but cannot from a danger nigh. When though the moon, the white moon, shed all the splendour of her noon, her smile is chilly, and her beam in that time of dreariness will seem, so like you gather in your breath, a portrait taken after death. And boyhood is a summer sun whose waning is the dreariest one, for all we live to know is known, and all we seek to keep hath flown. Let life, then, as the day-flower, fall within the noonday beauty, which is all. I reached my home, my home no more, for all had flown who made it so. I passed from out its mossy door, and though my tread was soft and low, a voice came from the threshold stone of one whom I had earlier known. Oh, I defy thee, hell, to show on beds of fire that burn below a humbler heart, a deeper woe. Father, I firmly do believe, I know, for death, who comes for me from regions of the blessed afar, where there is nothing to deceive, hath left his iron gate ajar, and rays of truth you cannot see are flashing through eternity. I do believe that Eblis hath a snare in every human path, else how, when in the holy grove I wandered of the idol, love, who daily scents his snowy wings, with incense of burnt offerings, from the most unpolluted things, whose pleasant bowers are yet so riven above with trellised rays from heaven, no moat may shun, no tiniest fly, the lightning of his eagle eye. How was it that ambition crept, unseen, amid the revels there, till, growing bold, he laughed? and leapt in the tangles of love's very hair. We are nearing the very end of our journey, and now it is time to see if your path through possibilities and utter despair have helped you to recognize some of the nuances in Poe's writing. We will have our first two poems in reverse order, with a brief pause in between. In just a moment we will have The Bells and Alone featuring different performers to finish up our program this evening. We hope that you've enjoyed our journey through Poe's poetry and a search for the hope that lies therein. The Bells Hear the sledges with the bells, silver bells. What a world of merriment their melody foretells. How they tinkle, tinkle, tinkle in the icy air of night, while the stars that oversprinkle all the heavens seem to twinkle with a crystalline delight. Keeping time, 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 in a sort of runic rhyme, To the tintinabulation that so musically wells From the bells, 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 From the jingling and the tinkling of the bells. Hear the mellow wedding bells, golden bells, what a world of happiness their harmony foretells! Through the balmy air of night how they ring out their delight! From the molten golden notes and all in tune, what a liquid ditty floats to the turtle-dove that listens while she gloats on the moon! Oh, from out the sounding cells, what a gush of euphony voluminously wells! How it swells, how it dwells on the future, how it tells of the rapture that impels to the swinging and the ringing of the bells, 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 of the bells, 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 
bells, to the rhyming and the chiming of the bells. Hear the loud alarum bells, brazen bells, what tale of terror now their turbulency tells. In the startled ear of night how they scream out their affright, too much horrified to speak, they can only shriek, shriek out of tune, in a clamorous appealing to the mercy of the fire, in a mad expostulation with the deaf and frantic fire, leaping higher, higher, higher with a desperate desire and a resolute endeavor now, now to sit or never, by the side of the pale-faced moon. Oh, the bells, 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 what a tale their terror tells of despair! How they clang and clash and roar! What a horror they outpour on the bosom of the palpitating air! Yet the ear it fully knows by the twanging and the clanging how the danger ebbs and flows. Yet the ear distinctly tells in the jangling and the wrangling how the danger sinks and swells by the sinking or the swelling in the anger of the bells, of the bells, of the bells, 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 in the clamor and the clangor of the bells. Hear the tolling of the bells, iron bells, what a world of solemn thought their monody compels. In the silence of the night, how we shiver with affright at the melancholy meaning of their tone. For every sound that floats from the rust within their throats is a groan, and the people, ah, the people, they that dwell up in the steeple, all alone, and who, tolling, 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 in that muffled monotone, feel a glory in so rolling on the human heart a stone. They are neither man nor woman, they are neither brute nor human, they are ghouls. And their king it is who tolls, and he rolls, 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 rolls a paean from the bells, and his merry bosom swells with the paean of the bells, and he dances and he yells, keeping time, 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 in a sort of runic rhyme, to the paean of the bells, of the bells. Keeping time, 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 in a sort of runic rhyme, to the throbbing of the bells, of the bells, 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 to the sobbing of the bells. Keeping time, 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 as he knells, 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 in a happy runic rhyme, to the rolling of the bells, of the bells, 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 to the tolling of the bells, of the bells, 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 to the moaning and the groaning of the bells. Alone. From childhood's hour I have not been as others were, I have not seen as others saw, I could not bring my passions from a common spring, from the same source I have not taken my sorrow, I could not awaken my heart to joy at the same tone, and all I loved, I loved, alone, thou, in my childhood, in the dawn of a most stormy life, was drawn from every depth of good and ill the mystery which binds me still, from the torrent or the fountain, from the red cliff of the mountain, from the sun that round me rolled in its autumn tint of gold, from the lightning in the sky as it passed me flying by, from the thunder and the storm and the cloud that took the form when the rest of heaven was blue, of a demon in my view.